Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Dr. Mark McLaughlin. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction, and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. And now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to 100% more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family and I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. Now, I have known Dr. McLaughlin for several years now. As a matter of fact, he's one of my clients. He's been through Reveal Your Path, and I work with him still consistently and have worked with him really through this book, the creation of the book that we're going to talk about. Uh, his book's title is Cognitive Dominance, and it's just an amazing concept. And for any of us, any of you who want to outthink fear and be able to make good decisions under high stress, high pressure, uh, and have a framework for doing that. That's what he gives us in this book. It's just a fascinating read. Actually, I should say I haven't read the whole book yet. I've actually read bits and pieces of it throughout the creation of the book. And so it's going to be, I just wouldn't be surprised if this thing becomes a bestseller. It is a really neat, uh, neat concept and, and book. And so without further ado, let me give you uh, a little bit of background and bio on Mark. And the other thing I want to mention actually before I give you the bio is 
he interviewed people like Sanjay Gupta, um, the doctor you always see on the news, you know, being referenced as an expert. Uh, he's interviewed people like Ed Hockeyles, who was a you know high profile NFL official before he retired, and you know those guys have to make high pressure, very fast, accurate decisions. So just uh, he's got a, got a lot of great uh, great background and, and feedback throughout his research that went into this. So anyway, without further ado, Mark McLaughlin, MD, is a neurosurgeon and the founder of Princeton Brain and Spinal Care. The first time he cut open a patient's skull, he found himself confronting a powerful force that his fellow brain surgeons agreed was best never spoken of, fear. But Dr. McLaughlin knew that if he couldn't find a way to cope with fear, all he had striven for as a physician would be lost. So with a scientist's analytical precision and a philosopher's worldview, he derived and formalized a method by which he could act rationally and confidently under the operating room lights and in other areas of his life while he's under the profound influence of fear. A former NCAA Division I wrestler, McLaughlin was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2016, and his commentary regularly appears in Business Insider and other national media outlets. And as always, if you don't have time to listen to this entire episode, make sure you grab your free copy of The Action Plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Let's get into the interview with Dr. Mark McLaughlin. Mark, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Jim. Mark, we have been talking about this day for a long, long time. You and I have been working together for years. You've been through Reveal Your Path, and you had this concept of a book, and, and you began writing it. You know, This was years ago, and this is something that you've really taken the time to craft and construct. And I know all of the, the work that you've put into it, and not only the work, just the, the sheer work, but... But the investment, right? You've you've learned how to write a book. You've gone and taken the courses and talked to people and talked to experts. I mean, this is a great book, and it's a great book for a reason. You didn't just sit, sit down and start writing. You really invested. So I'm I'm just so excited we are at this point. So you've done all the work, and uh, and here we go. So so Mark, for the listener, tell us a little bit about your background, kind of where you grew up, and the short version of how you got from from there to here. Sure. So I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, I had an amazing youth wrestling coach by the name of John Ceruto, who, other than my parents and my grandparents, was probably the most influential person in my life. And uh, he really sort of set me on a course to uh, to discipline and determination. Uh, so I went to high school uh, at Pingree School in New Jersey and wrestled there, and then went on to William & Mary, where I majored in philosophy and wrestled uh, for William & Mary. And then uh, went to medical school and uh, residency, medical school in Virginia Commonwealth University, and then residency at the University of Pittsburgh, and then a fellowship at Emory. Uh, but the neat thing was I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little kid. So it's been, it's been a fantastic uh, journey, and I am truly blessed to be living my dream. You majored in philosophy. Do many doctors have that background? No, it's, uh, it was rare, even back then, I think, rarer. And uh, the reason I liked philosophy was I really wanted to be, you know, as rounded as I could be. Um, I knew that I needed to have the sciences, and I took the sciences that were necessary. But I, I just, it's something that intrigued me. Um, I, I liked the, uh, the concept of thinking about things deliberately, and it just suited my personality well. And it's helped me you know, throughout my whole life and, and, and helped me writing this book as well. And you chose 
neurosurgery? I mean, who, who like what, what made you choose neurosurgery? I mean, you know, you, there, there's so many different areas to go into. And this one is, I mean, literally, you are a brain surgeon. People say, well, it's not brain surgery. Like, you're a brain surgeon. <laughs> um, why, why go into this? Well, I was lucky. My grandfather was a doctor. He was a general surgeon many years ago in Orange, New Jersey, and uh, and and his two sons were doctors. So I had the I had the privilege of having you know really great role models in medicine, and I saw how fulfilling medicine was for them. I got to carry my grandfather's black bag on house calls when I was a kid, and wow. so it was something that was just sort of in my blood. And um, as I began to go through medical school, you know, you rotate in all the different uh, areas of medical school. So you go through OB and psychiatry and medicine. And I really was drawn to neurosurgery because it, it molded both medicine and surgery. And many of the patients in neurosurgery were truly the sickest ones in the hospital. And I just loved taking care of them in the ICU and following all the numbers and following them through their illnesses. It, just, it was very intense. It was To me, it was like the Mount Everest of medicine. And with the, my wrestling background, uh, it really suited my personality well and i'm i'm loving every minute of it yeah you uh, i've known you for years and you are not one to choose the easy route and it's so interesting the reality and this is i'll talk to the listener here for a second so the reality of a neurosurgeon is like mark does brain surgery and spine surgery on a regular basis i mean to the point where and, and it's very normal in his in his world so one time uh this is a couple of years ago Mark and I had an early morning call scheduled and I called Mark and he didn't answer. And I said, oh, that's not like Mark. He's very always on time and always prepared for our calls. Called him again and uh, didn't answer. And then he calls me back like a half an hour, an hour later. He goes, Jim, I am so sorry. I'm like, what happened? He's like, well, I was on call. And I, and I, when you, when you called, I was actually in the middle of the surgery. I had the guy's skull open and I was, he was he was hands on doing that. I was like, Mark, you don't have to apologize that you were saving some guy's life, you know. And it went really. I remember he said it went really well, and it was just amazing to to hear that reality. And I, what was I doing? I was like, I don't know, returning emails or something like that. So it's just a, a different reality that uh, that a guy like Mark has, and gives you this perspective on life and on fear that you face, Mark, on a regular basis that. That we don't face, like we, you know, the rest of us listeners, and we face fear on a much more infrequent basis, right? And um, we get those intense bouts of fear, maybe in a car accident, or maybe in a job interview, or something like that, right? Where you're facing this on a regular basis. So this gives you this perspective on fear because you've had to practice it a lot. And you know, talk about in the bio when, you know, the first time you you cut into somebody's skull and you said, Oh my gosh, there's this thing here that I've got to deal with called fear. And I'm I'm thankful that you wrote the book. I've read bits and pieces of it. I can't wait to read the whole thing. But Mark, why why write a book about fear? I mean there's a lot of great doctor memoir books out there. Why write a book about fear and why write it in the style that you did? It's a great question, and I, I'd love to talk about this. It's um, the reason is, is and, and I love those memoir books. I mean, Henry Marsh has a beautiful memoir book about neurosurgery, and Tul Gawande is a beautiful writer, and it's, so there's so many stories out like that. And I I have some memoir in the book, but my thought was that I have this 
incredibly unique opportunity to experience this fear and anxiety on a daily basis. It's something that doctors don't talk about, specifically surgeons. Uh, it's something I think that it's it's an unwritten rule to sort of suppress it and to act like you don't have it and to just sort of try try to not you know to avoid it. Um, and and I realized there was no way I could do that. I couldn't be honest with myself and do that. So uh, with the neurosurgery and, and facing all these highly stressful situations, I, I asked myself, like, the, the, what have I learned from the last 20 years of my career? What have I learned and how can I transfer those bits of wisdom to my kids, to my friends, to people who are struggling with fear and anxiety in other ways? And even though the extremes of fear are something that I experience and others don't experience it on a daily basis, I think everybody has to deal with anxiety and fear. And fear is fear. When you're when you're worried or you're you're afraid, that, that's that's real at, at any level. So I, I wanted to take the lessons I learned in neurosurgery of how to cope with it, and how to metabolize it in a healthy way. Sometimes I did it in an unhealthy way, and I I talk about that in my book as well. But how do you metabolize this anxiety and this fear and function effectively and to thrive. So that was my goal. My goal was to, to take the lessons and to try to make them transferable to, to everybody. And the book's title is Cognitive Dominance, A Brain Surgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear. What is cognitive dominance? Cognitive dominance is a term that I, I stumbled upon when giving some talks up at West Point at the Center for Enhanced Performance. Uh, one of my my mentors and colleagues now is a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Nate Zinzer, who um, has been a sports performance psychologist for um, 40, 50 years now. He's an amazing guy, one of the pioneers. And uh, when I was giving some lectures up in his class called The Psychology of Elite Performance, I came across this term that they were throwing around called cognitive dominance. And that is uh, defined by the military as enhanced situational awareness that facilitates rapid and accurate decision-making under stressful conditions with limited decision-making time. And when I heard it, I was like, wow, that's definitely obviously something you want a soldier to do, uh, but that's something that we do in neurosurgery too. And and then as I thought about it more broadly, that's something that parents do when they're talking to their kids or uh, business leaders do when they're trying to make an important decision and talk to their board. So it's one of those concepts that I, I thought was really um, intriguing, and I thought that I could look through the lens of neurosurgery and define it in a different way. And let me offer just one other definition that I found on the internet. And this is from a military perspective of cognitive dominance. By the way, I'll have these outlined and defined in the action plan. Jim, it, just go to jimharshajr.com slash action. You can grab that. But uh, cognitive dominance also refers to, this is just another definition, refers to the ability of soldiers and systems that can, in a timely manner, outthink the enemy. It is about harnessing mental skills in order to consistently make rapid and accurate decisions. So Mark, now what? Okay, so we, we get it. We're like, okay, that, that sounds like a great idea. I would love to outthink the enemy. I would love to outthink fear. How do we do it? I mean, what are, what are some things that we can learn in the book? Maybe give us a, a couple, two, three stories um, and lessons from the book that, that we can take away here. 
sure. So the way I, I tell the book, and I had great help from my editor and co-writer, Sean Coyne, is we, I initially had organized it as sort of a self-help book where I had the, the 10 rules of neurosurgery applied to business and life. And it was a, it was a neat little, neatly packaged uh, proposal that I shared with Sean. And, you know, he sort of guided me and said, listen, you've really, this cognitive dominance is, is really, a, it's a, it's more of a big idea. And I think if you told it in a more of an adventure story, it would be very interesting and compelling. And you have the stories from neurosurgery to do it. So he helped me restructure and reorganize the book so that it's told as a story of me going through neurosurgery, having these incredible highs of success and performance, and also having these deep, deep lows of, of failure and mistake. And, and through the book, I, I propose a four-quadrant map that explains the journey that we all must toil through to get towards personal excellence. And it's important for people to understand that this isn't like um, enlightenment. You don't just obtain cognitive dominance. It's something that you aim for. It's something that I aim for still. I, I feel like I'm a student learning how to practice cognitive dominance every day. And I don't know if it's something you ever completely attain, but it's something to shoot for. It's a, it's a true north on your compass. So I'm trying to triangulate off of fear to get to cognitive dominance. So tell us about the quadrant you mentioned. Sure. So the, the book is divided into four quadrants, and they begin with flow, and it moves, if you imagine like a Cartesian four-quadrant graph, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a flow quadrant. In the lower right-hand quadrant, there's something what I call the calm before the storm. And then in the lower left quadrant is the uh, all is lost quadrant. And then the upper left-hand quadrant is the birthing a new skill set quadrant. And so each of those are areas of our personal development towards cognitive dominance. So one of the misconceptions I think that's out there is we have a lot of uh, performance enhancement uh, people saying, you know, we need to shoot for flow. We need to shoot for flow. We need to be in flow all the time. And I think that's a flawed concept. I believe that you can't live in flow all the time. The world would be very King Midas-like, and you'd lose interest very quickly in things. Similar to look at some of the people, celebrities that have, you know, have their successes come to them so amazingly quickly and with everything that they do, and then they they fall off the track. They 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 lose interest and they they lose their skills because they engage in bad activities or poor coping strategies. So I. I believe it's more of a, we live in these four quadrants all times in our lives. So flow is obviously, everybody knows about flow. That's where you can't do any wrong. You're not thinking, you're just acting, and your body is performing, and your brain is performing. And that's great, and it's fun. But then there are times in our lives when we've achieved a high state. I talk about the calm before the storm. For me, was when I finally achieved the status of being a neurosurgeon, and I moved to Massachusetts, and I began practicing. And I, I realized like I had these feelings that I never would have expected having. And some of them were like, is this it? Like, is this how I'm supposed to feel? I'm not feeling so good right now. I, I have a tremendous amount of stress. I'm worried about things, you know, whether I'm able to serve as a good husband and father to my family as I'm being pulled away to all these uh, emergencies. My mind is always pulled away to different things. Even when I'm having family dinner, I can't think about it. I'm worried about work or a patient. And I didn't expect to feel this. 
So that's what I call the calm before the, the storm quadrant. And, um, and we can talk more about it, but just to move through the quadrants. Then, then the, the lower left-hand quadrant is the all is lost quadrant. And that's when something catastrophic happens and it really forces us to question, you know, the meaning of life, our meaning of life. Why are we here? You know, you, you get faced with a, a horrific situation. You do everything you possibly can to make it right. You do everything that you've been trained to do and something still, something bad happens, something sometimes terrible happens and you don't make any sense of it. It, it truly doesn't, it, it doesn't fit with your worldview of how things should be. And we have to cope with those too. And we have to figure out a way to, to get through that and to make sense and meaning of that. And then that moves us up into the upper left-hand quadrant, which is the birthing a new skill set quadrant. And that, that goes with how do we figure out dilemma that's been plaguing us and how do we work our way through that to solve it? And then once we solve it and we make, we put that add to our skill set, we move back into the flow quadrant. And for me, it's a constant journey between these quadrants. They don't always go in that counter and that clockwise uh, fashion. Sometimes you, you switch from one quadrant to another immediately, but it's those four quadrants that I think we live in. And if we can identify them, it will help us get through them. So if I'm, I, I kind of jotted this down as we were talking, I, I created my little, my little chart here. And so we move from flow to calm before the storm to all is lost to birthing a new skill set and then hopefully back to the flow state. So is this how we grow as people? Is this how we deal with struggle and failure and setback and challenge generally? We, we go from this flow state where things are, are kind of good and we feel good about things and then we get into this calm before the storm state and then boom, you hit the storm, all is lost, and then you grow and learn through that and birth a new skill set. Is that right? Yes. However, it's not always a linear progression. And I'll give you an example. So take a step back. The quadrant is the quadrant system is a good way to look at these areas of your life and, and events that occur. But taking a step back and taking a page from a guy who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, Jordan Peterson, I uh, just recently read his book, 12 Rules of Life, and I highly recommend it. It's, it's a beautiful book. He wrote another book years ago called Maps of Meaning. And uh, the, the book is about basically the architecture of meaning in your life. And uh, they're very, very well written and thoughtful. So uh, taking a page from Jordan Peterson, he, he sort of talks about how we're at this certain state in our life, and that's what is, and then we're, we're moving along in our lives to what should be or what we expect to be. And along that path, events happen to us, events that are uh, some are expected, and they're consistent with our goals from we're going from where we are to what should be. And then sometimes events hit strike us that are not what what were expected and that is where the fear loop comes in the anxiety loop comes in and so once you get an event that's unexpected not consistent with your goal on your path from where you are to where you should be once you get faced with an event that is unexpected and is not consistent with your goals that's when you're going to enter into this quadrant system of where where you're going to land and how can you react from from it. Do some people get stuck in the all is lost quadrant? I mean, you go, okay, all is lost. And then there's fear, there's doubt, there's, you know, regression, you know, quitting, giving up, you know, going, you know, 
going down a different career path or just down a different path and whatever whatever you know cycle you're in there. Do some people get stuck there? I've been stuck there myself. I think everybody has to the point of, you know, I, I tell one story in the book about this young boy uh, I took care of, and he's one of the central characters in the book. His name is Anthony, and uh, I met him in Massachusetts in an emergency room about 18 years ago, and um, Anthony had fallen from the school bus and had a cut on his face. But in the emergency room, his mom and dad said, there's something more going on here. There's, he's not acting right. That's when I met him. He was this beautiful boy with curly, dark hair and had a magnetic smile and had just had a great sense of humor. And I just immediately became attached to this kid. Um, we scanned him and it demonstrated a, a brain tumor uh, in the, a very important area of his brain, a deep seated area called the posterior fossa, which is where the brainstem is, which is the I-95 of the brain. And I had all the skills, I had all the training, and I knew I could fix this boy. I took him to the operating room. I performed a perfect operation. His postoperative scan showed a complete tumor resection. Everything was clear. The tumor was gone. And I was on top of the world for about 24 hours. He then began to have every single complication I could possibly imagine. And uh, his tumor pathology came back uh, very aggressive, which was not a good situation. And over the course of three months, this boy and his mom and dad suffered incredibly, incredibly. It was really, really terrible to see this beautiful boy slip through my fingers and, you know, have severe neurological deficits. And it was, it was a dark time for me too. Every time I got a page, you know, I saw the number seven, nine, four, three, four, zero, zero. It was, Oh my gosh, that's the ICU. That's Anthony. There's something wrong. And sure enough, many times when I would get those pages, there would be something wrong, but it became almost like a post-traumatic stress for me. Whenever I got a call from the hospital in the middle of the night or, you know, when I was working out, it was like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with Anthony? What's wrong with Anthony? And you know, I, over three or four months, I continued to ruminate, you know, what could I have done differently? Did I, you know, did I retract on the brain tissue too much? Did I shave one extra layer of cells off of the brainstem that I didn't need to? And I just could not get thoughts of what could I have done differently out of my head. And it was a really, really tough time for me that uh, I ultimately, you know, I was so distraught about the experience and what happened with Anthony that I ended up, I, I stopped doing pediatric neurosurgery and uh, I, I moved to New Jersey. And, you know, as it turned out, I was able to, to function but I, he never really left me. And I talk about that in my book. And, you know, I, I, in retrospect, I prob probably shouldn't have given up that area of neurosurgery because it's something that I had skills in and I could have helped a lot of people. But it was, it was a decision I made at the time that was something that I needed to make. So that was my all is lost, all is lost quadrant. That's, I can tell that's a hard story for you to share mark um that that's that's it's it's heartbreaking and and i know you go into more depth in it in the book and i think we've all been there at some level like you said we we've all been there right and 
you know, we ask that question, what could I have done differently, right? That's this question that we can all look at our lives in some way, shape, or form, right? Whether it's in a relationship, whether it's something at work, whether it's in our health and wellness, it's somewhere in our lives and maybe many places in our lives if we really sit down and, and, and examine our lives, we ask that question, what could I have done differently? And how do we deal with that? I mean, do you have a way to deal with that? Is there a framework to deal with that? Because as a, as a neurosurgeon, Mark, you know, you, you guys must, men and women must deal with that all the time, right? I mean, you're, you're, you go in, you do your best and there's just, your best isn't good enough sometimes. That's a great question. You know, and like you said, we all, every person, you know, in this world has an experience where they did everything right and something really bad happens and we're, we're traumatized by it emotionally. And I think it's perspective is what helps you get through it. It's perspective and continually, you know, examining it in a healthy way. And, you know, to, to finish that story, uh, because it, it, there is a silver lining in it is while I started writing this book uh, and talking about fear and anxiety and how I dealt with it in my career, I kept looking at the picture of Anthony that I had on my wall. The parents, his parents had given that to me before he transitioned to the medical service. And I, I, every time I walked by that picture in my office, I would be sad because I would be thinking about, well, oh, Anthony, you know, he had, he had a bad prognosis, he suffered, and he's probably suffered still, and then he probably passed away. So as I was writing the book, I, I realized, like, well, I don't even have the whole story. I need to, like, revisit this now, 16 years later. So what I did was, I, I, his mom and dad had a restaurant in town and, and in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I, I looked him up on Facebook, and I saw the pictures, and I saw mom and dad there, and then I scrolled down a little further, and Oh my God, Anthony, there he is with his parents. You know, he's in a wheelchair, but he's with his parents and he's still alive. I couldn't believe it. Wow. And I drove up that weekend to visit him, to see him. I hadn't seen him for 16 years. And I told his mom and dad how I'd always felt like I let them down. And they just gave me this big hug and said, what are you, you're our hero, Dr. McLaughlin. You saved our boy. He's still with us. You know, he's still my number one guy. And I, when I walked out of the, the restaurant and went home that night in my car, I just, I just thought, oh my God, I'm so lucky that I took care of Anthony. I'm, I'm so privileged to have taken care of Anthony and I wouldn't trade that for the world. And so it's these things that we need to have final perspective on. I was walking past this picture of Anthony and feeling sad for 16 years, and his mom and dad were grateful and enjoying him and, and having him at the restaurant. So it's one of those things where I think a continued pers different perspectives. We tell ourselves these stories, you know, that we're not good enough or we could have done something better when, in fact, we're doing the best we can every day. And yes, we can make mistakes, but as long as we're on the path to getting better, we're going to, we're going to succeed. We're going to function effectively. And you can function effectively even in the face of failure. So sometimes that voice inside of our own head is not the only voice we should be listening to, right? That, that, that sadness and everything you felt about Anthony, and, and now you're getting a, a different voice of these parents telling you that, no, like you're our hero and this, you know, our, our boy's still here. He's still in our lives and we love him. And, 
And so that's a voice that you weren't hearing for so many years, right? And so it's this is such a powerful story and, and just the idea of actually getting perspective, getting outside of your own head and getting perspective from somebody else. Exactly. Realizing that we hold ourselves to these impossible standards and you have to forgive yourself sometimes, even if, it, even if you did make a mistake and it resulted in something bad happening, you have to forgive yourself. We're all human. We make mistakes. We have to keep getting better and make sure that that doesn't happen again. But forgiving yourself allows you to free yourself. It allows you to grow. Yeah, that's powerful. Mark, is there another story or lesson from the book that you can share share with us? Maybe a favorite story or a favorite lesson that uh, that you included in the book. I would say another interesting one from really a birthing a new skill set uh, aspect was was a one was one area that I thought was really cool because you can face a a real challenge and then figure your way out of it, and that's that's really fun. Early on in my career, I, uh, I took a patient to the operating room that had a uh, brain tumor uh, deep in the center of their brain. And happened, uh, you know, the, the surgery got a little bit delayed. And then ultimately, I, you know, was looking at starting the surgery around two o'clock. And I was, you know, you know a little bit tired. And uh, usually I have some partners around with me to help. And they had other commitments. So it ended up getting started. And I was really kind of on my own. I had a scrub nurse and, you know, I had a team in the operating room, but I was on my own. I had to take care of the situation myself. And as I came down onto the area where the tumor was, there was no tumor. Uh, I was looking around. I had the microscope in and I'm looking I'm at the spot where I'm supposed to be and there's nothing there. And so now it's five o'clock and I, nobody in the room knows, but I know that there's something really wrong here and I don't know what to do. So I reach out and I pick up the phone and I call one of my partners and say, Hey, listen, I, well, first of all, I go back to the scan. I look at the scan and I, I, my, do I have the right patient? (laughs) Am I on the right side of the head? Am I doing the right surgery? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. So then I look at the scan and I say, you know, could this tumor have changed since I, I operated on him two days ago? Mm, Yes, but not likely. Could I have punctured the tumor as I went in? Yes, but not likely. I'm, that would be miles off from where I'm supposed to be in neurosurgery terms. So I'm, I'm, I'm still in a quandary. So then I turn and I pick up the phone and I call one of my partners and he's busy. He's not available. Can't help me. And so uh, I'm stuck. Um, so I go back. and This I is terrifying, the, by the way, Mark, to this story. Wow. Just trying to put, put, you know, for the listener and myself, putting ourselves in that situation. That's, that's, you can just feel my, my palms are getting sweaty and my heart's beating faster. Wow. So, sorry, go ahead. I don't know where this came from me, but I just sort of became really transparent with it. And I looked at everybody, I'm like, you know, guys, I'm a little bit lost here. I'm going to start from the beginning and we're going to go through every layer from the skin down through the scalp, through the skull, through the brain tissue into this area. And we're going to go through this together. So I just, started talking my way. Okay, so now that's the that's the frontal cortex. Okay, now I'm in the channel where the tumor should be. Now I'm looking around. I'm looking back. I don't see it front. I don't see it side. And then I just put the scope in a little bit further and then boom, 
I saw it. And it was, it was a tumor that was significantly smaller than I had in my mind's eye. I had anticipated a certain size and it wasn't that size. And it was a little bit more uh, similar to the color of the brain than I expected. And I found it. And I thought, wow. oh, I got it. And then I was able to resect it. Shortly thereafter, I walked out of the hospital and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I am so much better of a doctor and a surgeon now that I right. figured that out on my own. And so it's one of those things where, and I, it's interesting, I interviewed Sanjay Gupta uh, for the book and he gave me some really good insights. And he, he says he does the same thing. He's, he narrates the room. When something's not right, he narrates the room. And I think that's a skill anybody can use. If you're in a situation that's foreign, that's not, not what, it, what it's like, instead of like pretending like you're a know-it-all, but actually using the resources of the room around you and say, I'm not familiar with this. Does anybody have any experience with this? Let's talk about the basics, step one to two to three to four. And, you know, pilots call that working the problem or astronauts will call that working the problem in NASA. And it's an important process that you can use to get yourself out of a difficult situation or something that you don't seem to have an answer for. And then, boom, then you move up to a new level of function and you can land back into flow. Yeah. Yeah. Once you learn something like that, you can't unlearn it. You know, your own mind shifts and changes in ways that, that can't be undone. And, and, and now you're better, right? Now you're a better surgeon for it. Exactly. Mark, can you tell us about a time where you failed? Can you tell us about a time where you felt that, that self-doubt, that hopelessness that comes from failure and how you were able to move through it? Well, the one I, I told you was Anthony, who, which I always felt uh, as a failure. But another one, which I which I tell in this book, and it's I have to admit, it's, it's a little embarrassing and unnerving to talk about all your mistakes in your in your memoir as a doctor who's still practicing. <laughs> I, I hope I still have a practice after this. <laughs> but there is another failure that I had that, that again, it, it turned into something very meaningful to me. And that was, I met magnetic podiatrist who um, had uh, uh, complaints of throat pain. And um, I, I have a special area of neurosurgery that I, that I take care of for those kinds of things called glossopharyngeal neuralgia. And he was this really wonderful guy who came to me with a diagnosis and, and he had been all worked up by a whole bunch of doctors in New York and he needed treatment and I operated on him and, and he got better for a period of time and then he got worse again. And um, I didn't understand why he had gotten worse. He didn't understand. And for a period of time, probably about a year, we just figured he had a recurrence of his, uh, of his problem and we were trying to, with medications and things. And as it turned out, Jim, I missed his diagnosis. He had, a, he had another diagnosis and he had a mass in his throat that um, was under and hidden from the scans that I had gotten. Wow. And... Um, it was just an awful feeling when, you know, he called me and said, hey, listen, I got a new scan and it shows there's something down there that looks cancerous. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I just I missed his diagnosis and I and I and he's been suffering for a year and now I may have jeopardized his life. It was just uh, chills just went up and down my spine and still do to this day when I when I think of that day and I just I, I made a mistake I, I missed his diagnosis and I think if you talk to every doctor who's out there if they're honest with you they'll have made a mistake like that of course and, um, 
most, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know really what to do. I mean, I went, almost went through the Kubler-Ross, you know, of, of denial, anger, you know, bargaining, the whole process of, of trying to get through it. But in the end, what I realized is, oh, my gosh, I need to, like, talk to this guy and, you know, apologize and, and see what I can do to help him get the right care from here on out. And, you know, I got to do what I can. I got to lean into this. And, um, you know, I, most uh, doctors and their advisors will tell you if you make a mistake, don't tell anybody, don't talk about it. You're going to have a lawsuit on your hands and it's not the right thing to do. And it's obviously the first thing your self-preservation is going to be is like, don't defend yourself. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I, I just couldn't. So I, you know, I reached out to him. I talked with him. I told him, you know, it was, it was clear that I had made an error. I wish I could have been a better doctor for him and that how could I help him moving forward? And, um, he's just the most amazing guy. Uh, he just was, uh, he was gracious and he forgave me and we continued to, to get through this together. And fortunately he went ahead and got treatment and he's been disease free for the last two years Wow! and he's back living his life and functioning as a doctor. And he's just, uh, he's an amazing, amazing person. And, um, again, sort of my worst failure that I know of, I mean, maybe there's others out there, but the one that I know of, I was able to um, reach out and, and maintain a relationship with this person. And we have a, we have a really great relationship and he's a, an, an amazingly beautiful person. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that I went through the experience and, and wish, wish I could have been better for him. And, and I am better for everyone uh, after him because I've, I've, I've recognized that. Mark, I appreciate you sharing that because that that's certainly a, a hard story to share. And for the listener, like we all want to be perfect, like we want to be perfect, right? Nobody, no, it doesn't exist, right? It, it's it doesn't exist in this world anyway, on this planet Earth, it does not exist. And and you know, Mark, you're in a line of work where mistakes are are so much more costly than most other people, right? When we make a mistake in our work, and and so I want to encourage the listener to realize that. That your mistakes are normal, right? Your mistakes are, they're normal. Um, your challenges, your setbacks, your failures, your obstacles, like that's part of the process. And if you want to level up, you want to get better, you're going to have to, to get through those, right? You're going to have to get through the all is lost and get back, get, you know, get to the next level of birthing a new skill before you can get back to the flow state that you were in. And, and if you're not willing to go through those, you're not willing to face those. Then, then you're going to miss out on on doing great things. You're going to miss out on on the amazingness that that life can bring, and in developing new skills and, and being the best version of yourself. So, Mark, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just to echo what you said is, and talking about it and figuring out how you can learn from it. It often involves apologies to people, and it involves forgiveness and, and forgiving yourself. Those are two key key parts to learning from a mistake. Fantastic, Mark. Um, now, can you share with us something that you've done over the course of your life, some kind of habit that you have that you feel has really helped set you apart, something that you do on a regular basis that you really feel like gives you an advantage and has been uh, most responsible for your success? 
sure. And, you know, I, I, I credit you for helping me craft this as something that I sort of was, was doing uh, a little bit on my own, but in working with you and becoming more intentional in, in my choices, I've uh, really, really kind of codified this. And that's my daily morning routine, which involves meditating looking at my Franklin planner, which is a written planning system. I could never go to a digital or a computer-based one. I just can't see my week like I normally do. So it's going to my Franklin planner, looking at my week and my day and planning my to-do list. And uh, and then it's going through my file system. I took a page from uh, Getting Things Done, which is a great book. I think it's David... Uh, David Allen. Yep. And I had... Allen. David yeah. Allen. Yep. And I had David Allen on the podcast here back in episode 116 for any of the listeners who want to go check that out. Outstanding book. And I took the page from him, basically setting a file system for every day of the month and every month so that I put things in a tickler reminder system, which allows me to do little projects that are you know important but not urgent. And I just recently added to that daily reading. So it's four. It used to be a triple threat. Now it's four. I got to figure out a, a rhyme for that. But those four things, meditation, and I've used a, a, an app called 10% Happier, which I think is outstanding. It's a great, great book and a great podcast and, 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 and an app. So I use meditation, Franklin Planner, file system, and reading. Even if it's just a paragraph, I try to do that every single morning before I get going. And yeah, I think setting yourself to like every single day, I can't do that. I mean, some mornings I got to jump up and run to the office, but I'm, I'm trying to hit 80, 90% of the time. I'm doing that on a daily basis. And it's been like stepping on the accelerator pedal for me and, and the things that I want to do. And back in episode 210, I talk about routines. So, and by the way, some, one of my friends recently asked me, he said, Jim, you call up these episodes so quickly. Like, do you have all 200 and some episodes memorized of which number? I was like, no, I, I've got a list here in front of me. I'm not that smart. But uh, yeah, quadruple threat, Mark, that, that Mark, that doesn't have quite the same ring as triple threat. So uh, yeah, you got to come up <laughs> with something for that. But, um, you know, and for the listener, like, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about here. This is a productive pause, right? You were looking at a, a successful person who operates at a very, very, very high level every day, and he talks about this routine. He talks about this pause. He talks about meditating. He talks about planning every day, planning, trying to hit that you know, 90% level of doing the planning and, and as opposed to just launching into your day. And sometimes we do. We have to just launch into the day. But if you can hit that pause button... You know, that short period of focused reflection around specific questions that gives you clarity of action and peace of mind, that is the productive pause. So, Mark, thank you for sharing that. For the listener who is like, they're in, they're like, okay, Mark, I get it. I want to outthink fear. I want to take the next step. What action item can you give us? Something that they could do, let's say, in the next 24 to 48 hours to really start taking advantage of what we learned here in this episode today? I would suggest just almost a mindfulness of what situation you're in. I would ask yourself, what, what in this particular event in my life, whatever is it, whether it's work or whether it's family, am I in flow or am I in the calm before the storm or I'm in the all, all is lost moment or I, am I birthing a new skill set? Just knowing what quadrants you're in, and I, I do talk about it more like how to identify it, but the knowing what quadrant you're in will help you progress through it. And you will progress through it. Like I said, you can't live in flow. You have to learn new skills. Otherwise, life's going to become boring. So identifying that area 
I think would be a good good starting point. That's a great productive pause right there. And I can imagine in various areas of our lives, we are in the various quadrants, right? In various various you know skill sets that we're trying to learn. We may be in flow. We may be in the calm before the storm. All is lost or birthing a new skill set. In different areas, we're in different quadrants. So what a what a great exercise. So thanks for sharing that, Mark. So how can we get your book? How, you know, promote yourself a little bit. How do we find you, follow you, get your book, etc.? Well, you can get the book on Amazon.com, and it's also available at Black Irish Publishing. You can also get information about the book and stories on my website, MarkMcLaughlinMD.com, and uh, you can follow me on Instagram at MarkMcLaughlinMD. And that's uh, good. Spell your last name for us, Mark, for the listeners that can sure, make sure get to the right website. MC, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-N, M-A-R-K. M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. Excellent. Mark, man, words of wisdom, so many powerful lessons out of this. And uh, you know, I'm going to get my hands on that book here real soon. And, and um, I've already got my pre-order in and as we're recording this. And it will be, uh, it will be out. Hopefully, I'll have it in my hands by the time this podcast episode actually goes live. So thanks for making time for this, Mark. I know you're super busy. Uh, you've got lives to save today. So I'll let you go do that. Thank you for making time to come on the show. Thanks so much. And for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success.